G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. And we'll have a specific focus this hour too. You may have heard in the news just recently, earlier this month, that the High Court handed down a very significant judgment about the binding nature of prenuptial agreements. Well, a young Eastern European woman successfully fought to overturn a prenuptial agreement that she was forced to sign just four days before her wedding. Now, in this case between who are known as Thorne and Kennedy, the 36-year-old woman moved to Australia seven months after she met a 67-year-old Australian property developer online. But four days before their wedding, the man presented her with a binding financial agreement to be signed before the wedding and another one to be signed 30 days after. Well, in its decision earlier this month, the High Court said because Thorne was willing to sign both agreements, despite being advised by her lawyer that they were terrible, served to underscore the extent of the special disadvantage under which Thorne laboured. And the High Court has unanimously allowed an appeal. So what does all this mean? Let's make some sense out of this. Family Law Specialist Stephen Potts, Managing Director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane, are back with us again today. A special welcome back to you, Stephen Potts. Thanks, Neil. Good to be here. Stephen, isn't it good that when the High Court makes... Uh, deliberations on things, uh, that they have these uh, summaries. And, you know, I guess in the law profession, uh, you can refer to cases. Mm. And uh, it's great because a case is a story and you can start to work out how that might fit for you. Uh, in this one that I've just been uh, really giving a little bit of a pricey of, it is significant because it overturns a lot of things that a lot of people thought were in concrete when it comes to these sorts of pre-marriage or even post-marriage agreements. Uh, as I've presented that there, have I presented that fairly accurately? Yes, pretty much. The the only other, well, the only difference is she signed it four days before they got married, but I think she was given it about 11 days. Not that that really, <laughs> 11 days or set or four days doesn't really make much difference, but it was a very short period of time. And the uh, one of the interesting things is that the High Court actually overturned the decision of the full court of the family court. So initially when the when the wife challenged the agreement, she was successful um, in the in the in the court at the first level, and then um, the 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 other side, the other party who actually this this case is one of those cases that have all of the interesting parts. Mr. Uh, Kennedy actually passed away during the original trial, so he had he had died by the time that the original judgment was handed down, and his children, who were the executors of his will, stepped into his place and said, "Well, his estate is still part of this litigation." The estate is still bound by the agreement. The agreement should not be set aside. And uh, they were unsuccessful. The wife set aside the agreement at the start. And then, of course, they were unhappy with that. So they appealed it to the full court of the family court. And the full court of the family court said, no, this agreement is binding. Uh, you've got to stick with it. And um, the wife was unhappy with that. So then she appealed it to the to the high court, which is, to the best of my knowledge, the very first prenup case to get to the high court. 
Okay, well, the way you describe that there, a little more detail than I was expressing in Mm. the introduction. And what it shows is that uh, as we could be listening to this conversation today, and there are sympathies on both sides, uh, listeners will be thinking, well, I'm on the side of the rich guy. Others are saying, well, I'm on the side of the poor woman. Mm. And this is happening more and more. Uh, you know, typically when I used to think of prenuptial agreements, you'd think of, uh, you know, the rich, successful businessman. And then there's the, uh, you know, excuse my terminology, the gold digger woman who uh, wants to marry the older man and got her claws into his estate. Now, obviously, there's uh, there's all sorts of ways you can look at these things, but but that's the way that prenuptial agreements perhaps for some people, are formed in their imagination, in their mind, and what they think of them. But, of course, with the way that marriages are ending and people are remarrying and the interests of children are at the heart, Mm -hmm. uh, then these prenuptial agreements are becoming a whole lot more common, Steve. Yeah, they are becoming more common, and it, it, it comes just from a change in society, like you like you foreshadowed there, because for a very, very long time, these kinds of agreements were pretty much frowned upon, and then the court did have a mechanism whereby people could reach agreements and they could sanction those agreements. But what we're talking about really is private contracts that people have entered into without a court ever looking at them, saying, if we were to break up, this is what would happen when we broke up. And that's actually only been an option since about 2000 in Australia, the year 2000. So we're only talking about 17 years or so. Have these agreements been entirely outside of the supervision of the court unless somebody later on wants to challenge it, which is what happened here. So typically what happens is two people will um, reach an agreement about what they would like to happen and nobody ever knows about that agreement other than themselves and the lawyers. It's all prepared privately. It's never reviewed by a judge. It's only ever reviewed if one of them later on says, hang on a minute, I don't want to be bound by that agreement for various reasons. Um, And so... It takes a while for some of those agreements that have been struck in the past to blow up, so to speak, and and become part of a a wider dispute. So this particular agreement, my recollection was that it was done in about November 2007. Um, That's when it was first uh, agreed. The the original uh, judgment didn't go through until um, late 2014 or 15, and then there was the appeal through the full court of the family court. That was handed down in 2016, and then they had an argument for most of this year in the high court. Um, The preliminary stages occurred in the first half of the year, and then they had the actual uh, oral argument in August, and then a judgment in November. So we're talking 10 years between when the people actually struck the agreement and the final outcome where they said, no, that, that agreement's not valid. So it's yeah, and it just changes. It's a reflection of the amount of time it takes for society to work through those changes. It's interesting because uh, talking on this program, we're always uh, mindful of the idea of what it is to be a Christian, and whether it's a good Christian thing to have a prenuptial agreement. Because uh, this could be a very contentious thing. Uh, because I'm sure that there are those who would give advice about marriage to Christian people entering into a marriage, they would say, no, no such thing as a prenuptial agreement. Mm. But when you've got what typically does happen when there is a second marriage and there are all sorts of different mm. scenarios that could easily play out if there are some you know bad things that happen, uh, then these all of a sudden become even important for people who are Christians. That's right. And I think um, certainly historically my experience with people who wanted to enter into these kinds of agreements 
was that they were typically people going into second marriages or, um, truth be told, second relationships because they can be made regardless of whether you're married or de facto. Um, because essentially what the people were doing is saying, well, I've already been through one marriage breakdown before. I don't want to go through that process and the cost of the financial dispute again in the future. Or if we do separate, I still want to make sure that I've made adequate provision for my children because of various circumstances. And so typically those agreements were for people going into second relationships um, and wanting to perhaps quarantine what they had kept from a previous relationship uh, or, or be clear in advance about what might happen if they uh, if they separated. Again, it's not particularly romantic. Um, it's, 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 I always make the kind of joke on the side that it's like saying, I love you, just not as much as my money, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's that kind of – and I guess that harks back to that, that – um, that stereotypical view, just like you shared before, about a wealthy person and and uh, perhaps a, a suspicion that the person forming a relationship with them is doing it for more unscrupulous reasons, like getting their hands on their money. I don't think that's um, as common anymore. I think the nature of people's relation. I think with younger people, I certainly see younger people coming in and and asking for these agreements more often now, and it tends to fall into two main categories. The first is young couples who, um. Are very distrustful of marriage at, of marriage itself. They don't really view uh, marriage as a lifelong commitment. Um, they're perhaps suspicious about their uh, about marriage because of their own parents' um, breakup or things like that. And so they don't necessarily view marriage as being permanent. And so they say, "Well, if it's not permanent, what do I need to do to kind of preserve my position a bit, or just provide a little bit of buffer or insurance or things like that?" Um, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but the other the other one is is that I see regularly the other kind of group of people are young couples whose families are about to give them a large amount of money, perhaps money to buy a house or a fairly significant gift, and the parents aren't particularly keen to give that money if they don't really trust or know the other party in the relationship and they don't want a situation where family wealth then gets diluted with somebody else coming into the relationship. So th- those are the two kind of most common scenarios I see now with younger people. And of course, I suppose the other dimension is that when you say young people, even being suspicious about marriage, are entering into de facto relationships and is a de facto uh, treated the same way before the family court uh, with these sorts of financial agreements? By and large, yes. It, they sit within different sections of the Family Law Act purely because of constitutional powers and things like that. But in essence, they are exactly the same. The difference really revolves around when de facto relationships start and end. With a, with a marriage, there's a really clear start point to a marriage because people get up, there's a marriage ceremony, they're pronounced as husband and wife, and... Um, that's the date at which the jurisdiction of the court can kick in in terms of a marriage. The court would look at all of what happened before the marriage if they had been living together and things like that, but the court knows precisely when the marriage started. De facto relationships are very nebulous in the way that they start. People have very unusual and differing ways in which they form relationships, and as a result of that, there's not a clear express line in the sand to say, okay, this is when the, the relationship started. Sometimes it's agreed, sometimes it's 
<laughs> you've got to weigh up all of the factors about you know when people started living together or sharing bank accounts or being seen in public as being a couple who lived together, all of those kinds of things. And, of course, this couple that we're talking about in this case that was before the High Court, uh, they met online, mm-hmm. a lot of people meeting online. And, uh, you know, perhaps that's a, a whole big topic on its own as to uh, uh, as to the right and the wrongness of, uh, of how you meet. But lots of people, in fact, the majority of people, young people these days, are often meeting their partner online. And so does the online meeting have much bearing on the way that the relationship might be viewed by the High Court? Not so much the way the relationship was viewed, but I think that the, the, for this particular case, the nature of the, the people involved in their lives was certainly uh, relevant. So the fact that they met online was not so much the issue. People could li- meet online and, and be in adjoining suburbs or something like that. But this particular situation that the lady was from a, from an Eastern European background, like you mentioned, she was not English speaking, um, English wasn't her first language, sorry. She was English speaking, but it wasn't her first language. And uh, she was from recollection from a Greek Orthodox background. And I have a feeling the property developer may have also been from a similar kind of a background. So I think that's how they kind of connected in a way. Um, so the issue is not so much that she was overseas, but being overseas created some extra chaos for her because one of the, one of the things that, um, the judge originally found in which the High Court agreed with was that she was under this special disadvantage because she was essentially told, well, you've got to sign this agreement or the wedding's off. And I think, I think it's important to, to kind of put some context uh, around the facts because she, she was a young woman. She had been married before. Um, so she wasn't um, completely naive about the nature of marriage, but she had been married before, um, and she had also been in a in a four year old de, fac- uh, de facto relationship. So she had some experience in in relationships, um, but she really did not own anything. I think she was living in the Middle East when they met. She came to Australia. He was worth somewhere between eighteen and twenty-four million. They don't actually say exactly what he was worth, and if he had property developments, I guess it depends on the market on any given day. But uh, he was worth a lot of money, and he wanted. He, he had said that he had made it clear to his um, to um, Mrs. Thorne, Ms. Thorne, uh, that uh, that money was being kept for his children, and um, but it was only right on the cusp of the wedding that he. Uh, produced this financial agreement and said, you need to sign this or the wedding's off. Now, the difficulty by then was the wedding was already organised, the dress was made, her family had flown in from overseas, they'd been accommodated in um, in, in, in the area in, in preparation for the wedding. And so the wife uh, felt that there was absolutely nothing she could do. She was desperate to form this relationship. She, w- she had expressed a really strong desire to want to have children and she saw this as the only uh, real prospect of that occurring. And all of a sudden she's told, well, you need to sign this agreement or the wedding's off. And so she didn't really speak the language as a, as a first port of call. She didn't have any assets. She had this huge family pressure that was uh, on her. And she had the, the I guess, the embarrassment of, okay, if this wedding doesn't happen and my family's got to get back overseas to where they originally had been living, then... Uh, it was a very, very difficult scenario. And, of course, there's a little bit of terminology you might be able to clarify for us because the High Court used words like unconscionable conduct mm. and the word duress. Mm. Now, they might mean things uh, in legal terminology that maybe the rest of us uh, novices don't necessarily understand, uh, but this is the sort of uh, accusation made against 
the man uh, mm. in the way that he almost forced these agreements to be signed. Yeah, so it's, it, it needs to be clear, he didn't actually physically force her to do anything. So it wasn't like she was pressured or had, had her arm twisted, which would be the classic kind of definitions of duress, someone under a physical kind of um, uh, pressure to, to, com- to compel them to do something. So obviously their, their will is not voluntary there. They're not actually expressing their free will. They've been overborne because of some external pressure. Um, just to step back a little bit, when the court sets these kinds of agreements aside, there's really limited grounds on which it can do it, and one of them is if the agreement is void or voidable. And the way the court has typically looked at that is to say, well, it's duress or it's undue influence or it's unconscionable conduct. So duress, we've just talked about, that's the classic. If we make it simple, it's twisting your arm behind your back. Yep. You, you sign this or I break your arm type thing. Now, undue influence arises where somebody has um, who can be influenced and it can be in a whole range of ways. So uh, it can be financial pressure being brought to bear on them, um, things like that. Unconscionable conduct is similar. It's really where somebody is under a special disadvantage um, and the other person knows that they're disadvantaged and takes advantage of it. So there's some classic cases like um, you know, parents and children, uh, things where people are in that kind of disadvantaged position and the other person takes uh, takes um, takes advantage of it and in this case what they were the, the court was satisfied is that it was both undue influence the high court was satisfied that the the, the conduct was both undue influence and it was also unconscionable because he knew all of these things and he still put the pressure on uh, to say you've got to sign this agreement or the relationships off life culture and current events from a biblical perspective 2020 on vision well, it might sound like a complicated conversation today, but if it affects you and you're in the circumstance where these prenuptial agreements may have bearing, you'll be very interested in our conversation. Our talkback line is open on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you'd like to join in our conversation, our special guest this hour is family law specialist Stephen Potts. He's managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane, and we are taking calls. Steve, let's take a call from Mary Ann in Logan Lee. In Queensland. Hello, Mary Ann. Welcome along. Hello. I had a Christian marriage. It was wonderful. My husband and I were both Christians, but I got sick somewhere along the line, and my husband couldn't handle my sickness, so he got he divorced me, and um, I got more money than he did. Anyway, I prayed uh, that we get back together. Started praying the day the solicitor told me my husband had put in for separation and have been praying ever since. I never married again. I used all my money to educate my children. They are now both millionaires because of the people they married and because I didn't remarry. And the Bible says a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And if she be married to somebody else, she shall be called an adulteress. David Pawson has written a book, um, a Remarriage is Adultery. I am so happy in the Lord. You have no idea how happy I am that I didn't remarry. Oh, Marianne, uh, that is wonderful to hear your story. And this is where I chime in whenever I'm talking to Stephen Potts and say, most of the things that we do in this 2020 program when it comes to marriage are about supporting, nurturing, 
and enabling people to have strong marriages that will last a lifetime. And this is where I also uh, chime in with Stephen Potts and say, for some people, that's not their story, that things lasted a lifetime and things go to custard. So things go pear-shaped for some. And uh, this type of conversation today is how do you handle it when things go bad? And so the focus on these prenuptial agreements. But, uh, Stephen, your thoughts for Marianne, who has a really quite an amazing story. Yeah, it, that's fantastic to hear those stories. And... um one of the interesting experiences that I've had with these kinds of prenuptial agreements is actually that they give you more flexibility than just um, separating couples. So um, Marianne shared the the challenges of what happens when the relationship breaks down. I've had situations where people have been in relationships that have been basically on the cusp of breaking down. They've been very, very close to breaking down. And one of the big issues in those relationships can be financial control. One party often feels as though they're being financially controlled by the other person. And um, I've, I've had the pleasure, actually, of drafting agreements for uh, typically women who have been in that position of um, financial, in an inferior financial position. They are being controlled and they see their only um, recourse as to leave the relationship. And these kinds of agreements, we call them prenuptial agreements typically that that's that's what they're most often referred to as but they're actually just called financial agreements and you can make them before you go into a relationship or while you're in a relationship and that this is where it's relevant because sometimes people can reach an agreement that says if we were to separate in the future even though we've been together and we are together at the moment if we were to separate in the future this is how our property would be divided now what that does is it empowers the person to know exactly where they'll stand and if if uh, I've certainly drafted them in ways that were much more generous to the, the woman in those situations to create an incentive on the part of the husband to work on the marriage. Now, that's not a surefire way of actually improving the marriage, but what it does do is it takes the financial pressure out as a, as a, as a thorn in the side, so to speak, that might um, distract in the relationship. And it gives the parties the ability to work on the core issues of the relationship and not worry about the financial aspects of it because for this for these women for example they knew well if the relationship breaks down I've already got an agreement about what happens I can now just focus on whether we can restore the relationship without having all the distractions of the financial issues and I've seen that to be quite effective I was talking to someone not so long ago who I did one of those agreements for maybe five six years ago they're still together they were they had actually separated they were already in court Um, it was heading towards a trial they came up with this idea that they would reconcile provided there was an agreement in place about what would happen if they then separated again and they're still together. Thank you so much to Mary Ann from Logan Lee in Queensland. You can be a part of our conversation today on 1-800-316-316. 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to run your scenario by our special guest. Uh, let me ask you, Steve, uh, when people have uh, this sort of arrangement, uh, is it better, as you're seemingly describing here, to actually have this before any marriage is entered into because it does seem to take pressure off the sort of mistrust that might be perceived if uh, if the agreement happens after the, 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 mar- the marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on, on when's the best time to actually set up this agreement if you know that there are untidy backgrounds that need to be addressed? Yeah, look, typically we would always have said before you go into the relationship but the the nature of the way um, relationships form these days and the, the sheer number of people who 
in society as a whole who live together in de facto relationships. And the change in the law in relation to de facto relationships means it doesn't really matter. Your, your legal position is pretty similar before you get married to after you get married. But um, it really depends on what's going to happen, I guess, during the course of the relationship and whether you need to make some um, some plans for that. I, I know it sounds really um, brutal, I guess, but okay. one, of the, one of the challenges is is uh, every relationship, you need to talk with your spouse or your future spouse about what, what's going to happen. Uh, Steve, before we take another call, let me just ask you about the broad range of agreements because when we talk about a prenuptial agreement, we were talking a little bit about the caricature idea of mm. uh, you know the rich businessman, uh, the, uh, the, the woman who has nothing and sometimes uh, you know given that sort of uh, title gold digger and the, the way that he might pre- you know uh, preserve his... Uh, assets, but there's lots of other ways that these sorts of agreements become very important uh, when they, when they, when it comes to uh, remarriage situations. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so in situations where people are wanting to make agreements about their property or spousal maintenance, things like that, they're typically done through these financial agreements. They can be prenuptial, so they can be made before you get married, or even before people go into a de facto relationship. They can be made while people are together. They can be made after they've been separated or after they've been divorced. So they, they're not bound to any one particular point in time, but the whole idea is to to privately agree how they're going to treat their property. And they, they are similar to the same kinds of private agreements that sit out there about how people might pay child support or how they might share the care of their children when they separate. So the court and the, well, the legislation is designed as much as possible to give people options to resolve things without ending up in front of a court. Um, there's been a very heavy push in the last uh, 20 odd years or so to keep people out of courts as much as possible and certainly uh, most family lawyers spend the vast majority of their work trying to keep people out of court rather than in that litigation uh, and in that really high conflict process. So um, financial agreements are just one other type of agreement that people reach um, about uh, personal affairs. So the more common ones in terms of sheer numbers of them that are made would be parenting plans or agreements about the care of children or, uh, or or child support agreements that say, well, I will pay for, one parent says, I will pay for you know various expenses. There might be a certain cash amount each week or each fortnight or something like that, but it, it might also cover school fees or extracurricular activity, sports or medical costs or things like that. So those sorts of agreements that people enter into when there is a breakdown in a marriage, these are the same sorts of things as a prenuptial agreement or a postnuptial agreement uh, because these uh, these particular agreements are all about the financial arrangements, the arrangements of the family after there is a marriage breakup. Yeah, typically, yes. So that you can actually, I have seen them also drafted to say, well, this is what we're going to do during the relationship and... Um, that can be helpful as well because what it can do is set some expectations between people. A lot of people don't necessarily talk about all of the things perhaps that they should do before they get married. Um, there's a great book by Gary Chapman called Things I Wish I Knew Before I Got Married, if yeah. you've ever had a, ever had a read of him. He wrote uh, The love, five, loving, five Love Languages right. and he yep. wrote that other book about things I wish I knew before I got married. Um, but sometimes these agreements also talk about, well, this is what we'll do 
while we're together. This is how we might buy property together or this is the kind of financial support that we'll um, provide for each other during a relationship. We are taking calls 1-800-316-316. You might have a scenario to run by Steve Potts. Let's take a call from Robin in Longreach in Queensland. Hello, Robin. Welcome along. Hello, thank you. Um, I'm sorry, I I just came in like halfway through and maybe this has already been addressed, but I was just wondering what the scriptural basis is for a prenuptial agreement. Okay, uh, that's right, and uh, a relevant question to ask, and uh, that's where I say, Steve Potts, what are your thoughts? All right, look, Robin, it's it's it is a difficult um, it is a difficult question to ask because you're talking about a difference in be- uh, between the laws of a state and what the Bible says. So what we're talking about in one sense is well, this is a mechanism that the state, the government, has put in place to enable people to provide um, for each other or for their children and things like that in the event that a relationship breaks down. Obviously, from a biblical point of view, marriage is seen as permanent. It's a commitment um, between a husband and wife in front of God, and it's a lifelong commitment. So um, that's why I say it's a difficult kind of scenario. But the legislation, as it's drafted, applies both for uh, people who are not yet married as well as those who are married and as well as for people who have been separated. And I think the difficulty is that um, we live in a pretty messed up world. We see the the uh, the outworkings of that every day. Um, if people are not going to follow God's word, then we've got to try and put other mechanisms in place to try and protect them. And this is one of those mechanisms that the government's put in place. And with uh, Robin still in this conversation here, uh, is it a fair enough thing to say if you were expecting for a young couple just starting out, uh, both at the beginning of their careers, falling in love and getting married, that that ought to be something that you ought not to have any special financial agreement in place really for the ideal situation. But when you've got a, a divorce, a remarriage, and there are children involved, is there an issue here for stewardship if you are a Christian uh, and you are concerned about your family uh, and the arrangements for those children that this might be a, a way that you could uh, talk about uh, how you might care for your children because things can go wrong? Yeah, certainly stewardship's probably a good word to use and it might help if I give some practical kind of examples just so that people can kind of understand how these things sometimes work. So if someone has come out of a relationship and they are remarrying, for whatever reason, it might be divorced, it might be because a spouse has died, it, it doesn't really matter. What we're really talking about is re-entering a new relationship and they've got money that they want to preserve or they want to make sure that there's adequate provision for their children. Their children might not yet be working. They might have some kind of uh, inability to work. They might have children with special needs, whatever it might be. One of the common things I see is people who do these agreements, they say, well, I will, um, we will join all of our property together, but my superannuation is going to be quarantined and left out. And that's a fairly common one to do because... Often with people's superannuation, they contain a life insurance component. So your super might be worth some money, but the life insurance is often worth a lot more than whatever your super balance is. And so what they say is in the event that we were to separate, um, then the assets that we've accumulated while we've been together, I'm happy to share those with you out. But 
the superannuation, that's to be quarantined. That's to be kept separate from my children because if I was, if I was to die early or um, if I was to have received that superannuation and then died, then I want that money to be able to be provided to my children for their benefit. And so in a sense, it's a stewardship of those resources because you're trying to make sure that your kids are provided for. Robin, does that answer the question? Not really. I haven't heard any scriptural. <laughs> well, I'm, what I'm saying is I, I, you won't find one that says uh, you should go and make these binding financial agreements. What I'm saying is that the law of the state in which we live provides for them and they're not a perfect solution. We wouldn't need them if marriages were permanent, if people stuck to the commitments that they made and they stayed together. But in a fallen world and in a fallen system, there needs to be some kind of measure of doing it. And the reality is if you don't have these agreements, really the only other place you end up is in court. And if you end up in court, you've spent probably 10 to 15 times the same uh, cost of of preparing these agreements. You've cross-examined each other in a witness box. You've spent most of your uh, two to three years probably having the fight. You've fractured most of the extended relationships in your family, and it's a complete and utter mess. So... Um, these agreements are not perfect, but they're a mechanism by which the government tries to uh, put in place something to contain some of that dispute. And I think that's what should be reflected on because it's the nature of, of, of humans and the relationship breakdown process is that it is a very messy process. That's why, it's, that's why God doesn't want marriages to break down. It's a terrible thing to happen. And Robin, uh, just you know, just reflecting on these things. And uh, now I don't have any particular scripture in mind either. But sometimes when we make assessments about these things, we might reflect theologically. And when we talk about stewardship, I suspect here that where there might be a couple and one is being completely disadvantaged, the other one perhaps even being coercive or uh, in some ways manipulative, uh, then this actually creates a protection. And so I I assume that when we talk uh, about Christian positions on these sorts of things, that we would want to protect both members of the relationship. And, uh, And if one is being disadvantaged, well, we might be actually on the side of the one who is being disadvantaged to, to ensure that they don't. And so I, sus- I suspect, and I'll get Steve's uh, uh, thoughts on this, but when we talk about stewardship, we want to protect the people who are most vulnerable in that marriage relationship if it comes to a point where that relationship breaks down and one then takes the other to the cleaners in, mm. that, uh, in that sense. Yes, certainly. Um, the thing to remember with these agreements is that you can't enter into them, they're certainly not binding, unless each person's been independently advised about the advantages and the disadvantages of the agreement and the effect that it'll have on their rights. So a lot of that is about trying to prevent people from being taken advantage of. In other words, they've got to sit down with a lawyer before they ever sign up with them. And Robin, one of the things um, I guess it would be helpful for you to be aware of is just the number of people historically who just got these kinds of agreements shoved under their nose and said, you need to sign this. Um the, the over the over the last ten years or so, there's been a lot more effort try, uh, in legislation and in the courts trying to make sure that people are properly advised about these kinds of agreements because they need to be told these are the advantages and the disadvantages of entering into this agreement, and this is the effect that it's going to have on your rights. Um, that's relevant because this case that we've just been talking about this morning that went to the High Court. The High Court was satisfied that that woman was taken advantage of. In fact, her lawyer told her, this is one of the worst agreements I've ever seen. You should not sign this. And she still went ahead and did it because she felt that she had no option. 
we live in we live in a society where people will always be pressured into doing things that they don't want to do and fortunately we've got both legislation and a court that actually intervenes in those scenarios and says well hang on a minute this person has there's been undue influence put on her to sign this agreement and the way in which the husband has acted has been unconscionable and actually those are quite biblical principles about um about the way that we treat people and so i think whether or not they should be entered into it at all is a is a different question. I think certainly they are quite appropriate for some people, um, but they don't represent the ideal view of marriage. It seems to me, uh, Robin, where we talk about a husband and a wife uh, uniting to become one flesh, that there ought not to be any sort of agreement that ought to divide them at all. Uh, but when it comes to a circumstance where people have gone through uh, that first marriage and uh, for whatever reason things went bad and then they contemplate a second marriage, that's when it becomes much more important to ensure that uh, those who are, you know, the offspring of uh, of whatever a partner uh, need to be protected. So it does seem to me that there are some uh, grey areas and no, I don't have any particular scriptural Context and listeners, if you do have uh, something, you might like to call us on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you uh, if you have some biblical wisdom uh, to offer on this, helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. Twenty twenty on Vision. Well, we're talking about prenuptial agreements, and as controversial as that may be, uh, our talkback line's still open. We may have time to take another call or two. But Steve Potts, it is a grey area as a Christian, and uh, perhaps we wouldn't be talking about it if it was just black and white. That's why we need your expertise here. Uh, there is an issue of stewardship. There is an issue of caring for the vulnerable, and you may be the vulnerable, or you may need to have that tap on the shoulder if you're thinking of being the manipulator, the coercive one in this sort of arrangement. But how does the family court see these sorts of agreements? Is there something that makes a prenuptial agreement or any of these other agreements that we've been talking about, is there something that uh, that makes them watertight? What is the attitude of the family court? Well, um, watertight is a little bit of a difficult kind of a uh, guarantee to provide in these kinds of circumstances, particularly when the High Court's just given this decision. But one of the things that's probably helpful to have a to have a think about is what the High Court actually said because they put some practical kind of examples in front of everybody in their judgment because they said, well, if we're trying to work out uh, the context of these relationships and whether or not there's been some undue influence or whether there's been some unconscionable conduct, there's some factual things that are helpful to have a think about. And they're things like whether the agreement was just put under someone's nose and said, there's no negotiation here, you sign this or else. There's not really agreement there when there's not actual negotiation. So was it a foregone conclusion that you've got to sign this document or not? Uh, things like what were the emotional circumstances that existed at the time? Was someone told, well, if you don't sign it, we're not getting married? And that's fine, but was that only days before the wedding or was that two years you know, at the, in, in, into a two, at the start of a two-year courtship, for example, and then okay, I just want to be clear at the outset we're not doing this, we're not going any further in this relationship without uh, some kind of agreement in place. So what were the emotional circumstances there? And things like whether there was time for people to reflect carefully on that on that agreement and whether there's time for them to get proper legal advice and properly be advised about uh, circumstances and things like that, as well as their financial position. So hopefully that provides a little bit more flesh on the bones. We're not just talking about um, these 
agreements in in a vacuum. They're, you've got to look at the facts that sit around them. And what you're uh, indicating here is that if you are going to contemplate even having this sort of prenuptial agreement or any of these other family agreements that you might need if you are entering into a second marriage, that this is the sort of thing that you need to work out well in advance and because if it happens right up uh, close to the wedding, mm. uh, then somehow or other the court will not look at that necessarily favourably, as was the case with the Kennedy Thorne case that we were talking about. That's right, yeah. Uh, we might have time for one more call. Let's hear from Coral in Cooma. Hello, Coral. Welcome along. Good morning. Yes. What are your thoughts, Coral? Look, I'm just wanting to comment. Um, the lady that I heard, I think she was the lady before... Uh, your set of conversations then, who was saying about um, that if you had perfect prayer and that you wouldn't need any of this. Look, I'm very, very conscious that uh, very few of us are perfect Christians that would perfectly be able to pray, and very few ministers are perfectly wise in every aspect of marriage so that they provided superb pastoral care and even very few other professionals are superbly perfect you know and so I I actually think the better that these things can be worked out and calmly discussed and you know even um, say you've got young people or one young person who doesn't realise everything if you have a very wise let's say doctor or someone like that, they can they can really stall everything and slow everything down so that everyone gets a fair chance of understanding it. And the um Coral, I think I can hear you saying that uh, some wise counsel is always going to be necessary because there are none of us who are perfect and especially young people entering into relationships, they're not going to have all the wisdom that comes uh, from someone like Steve Potts, uh, who this is this is his business. This is what he deals with on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so this imperfection that we all deal with sometimes means that we're going to need to take some levels of precaution. Uh, your thoughts for Coral, Steve? I only, I only to agree that, yes, nobody's perfect and the, the legal system is not perfect. Outcomes in courts are not perfect. Um, the we won't see perfection this side of eternity, and so part of the challenge that we have as Christians is how do we speak into um, the society that we are members of? And I think looking at issues like this, whether or not prenuptial agreements are a good thing or not, one of the real takeouts of this recent decision by the High Court is the the emphasis on looking after people who are potentially disadvantaged and who could be downtrodden, who are in, a, in an inferior position, and the court has recognised that and has actually protected those people. And from a biblical point of view, I think that's a very important uh, role to be doing, and I think Christians have a role to fulfil there too. Thank you so much to Coral from Kuma for your uh, input on today's conversation. It is it is an interesting conversation to have, and I suspect that the take-home value of what we might have been talking about over this past hour, whether you agree with prenuptial agreements or you don't, At least there's a little more information there so that if you have uh, 
perhaps uh, children who are growing up and uh, they'll soon marry, that, that somehow or other some of these more intricate things that could go wrong or those intricate precautions that might be need to be uh, taken uh, can now be a little bit better understood. Yes, yeah, certainly um, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, so to speak. But I think that it, it really the key issue is is understanding what's your view of marriage. Is it a lifelong commitment or not? Because if it's a lifelong commitment, you don't need a prenuptial agreement. <laughs> but we don't live in a world, and uh, we don't live in a world where everybody f- takes that same view. Um, and so these are an agreement. These agreements are a mechanism by which we try and contain some of the damage that might occur. And isn't it wonderful when you have both partners who have a view of marriage as being a lifelong commitment, but if one does and the other doesn't, you may still run into stormy weather ahead. That's right. And um, in those situations, they are difficult to to negotiate. I acted for a lot of Christians over the years and they... um, they struggle with the idea of, okay, what do I do now because the relationship has broken down, but where does that leave me and how do I provide for my children or how do I maintain a relationship with my children or how do I rebuild and financially support myself? Those are very difficult questions that I have to be worked through. And in those circumstances, things like financial agreements are one of the options that are available. And I hope listeners this morning to our conversation uh, uh, consider the things that we've talked about not as a way that you might become coercive in your relationship, but as a way that there might be precautions for those who might find themselves in a vulnerable position. And as a Christian believer, you want to have good advice. And that's why we invite Steve Potts to be a part of our conversations, because he's dealing with uh, the muck and the mire sometimes of what happens when families go bad. And uh, Steve, I always appreciate that family lawyers are often under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. And uh, you deal, you do deal with a lot of things that uh, some of us don't even ever consider uh, happens. And if we've got a happy marriage, uh, we'll never have to think about those things. But uh, but if things go wrong, uh, it's good to know that there's some good advice to be uh, to be had on the side. And I'll point people to uh, your website if people want to make contact with you. Uh, the website for Newman and Turner Lawyers. And now they're based in Queensland, in Brisbane. It's ntlawyers.com.au, ntlawyers.com.au. Steve Potts is a family law specialist. He's also managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers. Steve, thanks so much for making time to talk to our listeners today on 2020. Thanks, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.